Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. And there's a really exciting and new release from Chess.com that I've enjoyed using. It's called Classroom. This feature allows you to easily go over a game live with a friend or a club member that you just played. And you can do so interactively on the board with both of you on video talking to each other. It's also a great way to have a lesson between a student and a coach. And you can check that out on chess.com slash classroom. Welcome to this week's show. Our returning guest is international master and highly regarded chess coach Andres Toth. If you're not familiar with Andres, he is one of the premier chess coaches for adult improvers. He runs a superb YouTube channel that has amazing educational content that Andres infuses with his exciting and entertaining personality. Andres is also well known for his large array of award-winning chessable courses. In fact, he was named chessable course author of the year in 2021. And as it relates to this episode, lately he has been my chess coach for over a year. In that time, Andres has helped me a ton with my chess. So I thought it would be exciting to cover what I felt were some key lessons that I learned from my coaching with Andres that would be helpful for other club players like yourself. But rather than just have me list them, I thought I'd bring on Andres to do a deep dive discussion on each of these lessons. And just one small correction, you'll note that I say in the interview, seven lessons, and I had seven planned, but I was overzealous in what we could cover in an hour. So ultimately, we just cover five lessons and do some follower Q&A. One last point, we'll be giving away one of Andres' chessable courses this week on Twitter, a full video course. So check out my announcement for that. You can follow me on Twitter at Lona underscore chess. That's my last name, L-O-N-A, Lona underscore chess, and get a chance to win one of Andres' full video courses from Chessable. Here's my interview with Andres. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Andres. How are you? Yeah, thank you. Very well. And thank you very much for having me for the second time on the show. It's an honor. Thank you for inviting me again. Yeah. I hope I've got something new to say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that's. Uh, I think you will, mostly because I have new questions. Fair enough. Um, and yeah, <laughs> and um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, it's been almost two years since you first appeared on the podcast, right around the time when I first launched it. Your episode remains the most popular episode of my entire show. So yeah, I think people will have will be happy to have you back. Wow, that's that's epic. Is that because you haven't invited anybody else? No, I'm joking, <laughs> but no, no. I, I'm honored and I am actually quite genuinely surprised that that is the case. But uh, nonetheless, I'm also very happy about that. Hopefully, it does mean that I do say every now and then something remotely useful. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly what it means, and, and much more than uh, remotely. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to do this episode with you, Andres, and talk about uh, you know some of the lessons that I've learned over over the I don't guess maybe year year and a half in that range that we've done coaching mm-hmm. together. Uh, because I think my hope is that a lot of the things that that I needed to work on are are some of the things at least that uh, other club players do as well. So I think I think there'll be some hopefully universal stuff there. Just one thing before we dive into that part of the episode, which is the meat of it. Uh, I just kind of wanted to 
to get caught up a little bit on your work uh, with your chessable courses because you've done a lot uh, since the two years we last spoke. But maybe you could just kind of catch people up in the past year. Like what uh, what courses have you released in the past year? Right. So um, we finished off um, my uh, opening courses for beginners, which then have been rebranded into um, Club Players uh, Repertoire. So the D4, D5 for Black came out at the early part of 2023. And then um, we also launched my first beginner strategy course, which is... Uh, um, I think it's titled Don Rashtot's Chess Basics Opening Strategy, which we launched about um, two, three weeks ago, in fact. Yeah. Um, so that's that's my newest. And um, I am considering, and there is already a bit of a community push on me in this regard, thankfully, to continue this into middle game and end game as well, which was... You know, not quite uh, openly, but that was always the premise that uh, it could turn into a series. Other than that, um, I know it's going to sound very silly and unprofessional, but I don't know if I can (laughs) tell you, but I am about to go to um, Barcelona in two months' time to record one, potentially two courses, uh, which uh, will be two already existing books being turned into... um, chessable format so i don't know if i can tell you this i'm so unprepared for this question i'm almost embarrassed <laughs> so i'm gonna go with the no i i, I can't tell you but uh, uh let me tell you this uh and the chess community must have noticed that, yeah I, I think this is going to be an epic answer the chess community <laughs> must have noticed that um jeremy Silman's books are coming out in chessable Right, there are okay. multiple of them which have already been released. The the end game, uh, the very famous end game one, um, and a few others. And uh, I am going to join uh, the queue there, and um, I will be the narrator of one of uh, Jeremy Silman's most loved books. So I can tell That's you that I'm pretty awesome. sure that people can figure out what hasn't been done and what would line up very well with, you know, <laughs> what I teach, what I do on YouTube in particular. So that's that's uh, coming um, yeah. up in a couple of months. So for the first time, I'm traveling to Barcelona. I'm going to actually record in the Chessable office. I'm super excited. I've never been there. Um, I'm hoping to catch up with, uh, you know, other authors and other chess celebrities. Being in Australia means that I'm very isolated from the chess world in general. And um, I'm a very social guy. So I do, well, I guess need is a bit of a big word, but I I want, uh, you know, every now and then the social exposure more than, you know, just uh, casually sending off tweets whenever I feel like to. So it's going to be a great opportunity to catch up some uh, notable people. I already know that uh, my recording is going to overlap with um, Christoph Sedaki's recording, hmm. who is also recording a course at the same time, and uh, he is a chessable god to begin with. So <laughs> already there is a great opportunity to finally meet with you know some of the trailblazers of chessable. So yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, that's all very exciting, Anderson. I was really excited when you released the. Uh, I think you said it was called Beginner Strategy, the one on openings. Yep. Um, because um, I love the idea of a course that's on openings, but without teaching specific, you know, specific opening, uh, but rather principles. I think. Yes, that and that needed, is precisely so. what it's all about. Exactly. So there is hardly any opening theory in there at all, and we are hardcore focusing on establishing those very good habits very early on. Like it is genuinely a very beginner course. 
like entry level, but still the concepts stored there are, you know, those that are going to stay with those players for as long as they play. Right, right. Um, is this the first time you'll be recording in Barcelona for a chessable course? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah very much. Yeah. Very How much long are you so. staying out there? Uh, look, um, it's going to be two weeks and a bit. So it's going to be a very tight schedule because uh, obviously there are limitations in terms of how many people can record at the same time. Um, and also there is limitation on one's voice and ability to speak. I, I In particular, I struggle a lot with this. Um, I have got a very weak voice. And so if I talk a lot, I lose my voice very easily. Heads up to you that... Um, <laughs> You know, in two minutes, in ten minutes' time, we might call it a day. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, it will be interesting. But I do hope that uh, the environment and you know everything is going to inspire us to do our absolute best. And the recording is actually the part of uh, you know the chessable work that I feel like. I don't know if I enjoyed that the most, but I really do enjoy recording in general and being in front of the camera. That's uh, I think some something where I, I feel like I am in my comfort zone. So I'm excited to do that now in an absolutely professional environment surrounded by absolute pros. So, yeah. 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 It seems like a great environment for being very productive. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm sure people listening are as well. Um, I'd love to talk about that more with you, Andres. We'll mm. dive into now uh, the uh, kind of the meat of this episode, which is basically covering about seven lessons that I picked out from the many lessons that you taught me in the time that we've done coaching. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, these just were the ones that I felt like kept coming up both that and they were ones that just seemed really important that could be useful for other people as well. Let me start with the first one that I have for you. One of the most frequent issues I had was playing more aggressively. Um, as you know, Andres, too often I would play with a, a defensive mindset or even just kind of a neutral mindset where, for example, I might focus on a development move instead of you know, seizing a mistake my opponent had made. So my first question for you on this is, is this a fairly common mistake for club players? Yes, that's a definite resounding yes. Absolutely. Um, I I was thinking, like, there is almost always the the question coming alongside with this, um, whether this is typical only with grown-ups or with kids as well. Um, But um, I would say that this is not necessarily a typical grown-up issue, although perhaps more prominent there than uh, with kids. And I suppose the reason for this could be because when you start out with with kids, and we have got discusses already, and I don't know why I'm coming with the kids angle, but hopefully it will cover the answers. <laughs> you know, they they don't have that strong notion of uh, of materialistic thinking that grown ups do. So I, I think by default, an adult improver is disadvantaged, even if um, we accept the concept that uh, physiologically. They are completely even, Stephen. I think studies have been conducted and lots of debates and arguments went to and fro whether kids can learn things faster than than grown-ups. And the consensus is that physiologically, no. So there is no proof that the kid's brain is, you know, in any way better designed to learn things than a grown-up one. But I do think that certain preconceptions, even not chess-related or not directly chess-related, tend to seep into one's thinking uh, in other areas. Safety. Like, safety is a generic concern for any grown-up. Kids have very, very loose concept of safety. 
the way how they move around, the way how they play. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a primary school teacher. If someone, I know what they are like, right? Like their concept of safety is very loose compared to a grown up, right? Like they run, run like crazy. They don't <laughs> tend to look around exactly as thoroughly as they should. So safety as it, in general, they, they do that, that, that concept does not have the value that it does for a grown up. In fact, for a grown up, everything we do is very safety oriented, right? We want to have a roof on our, uh, above our head. We want a safe income. We want to ensure that our family members are looked after and cared for. Like safety is everything. And I, I simply can't help but think that even if, you know, someone tells you 10 times back to back at your first chess lesson that forget about counting material, sack like your life depended on it and you will be a great player. You will still be very reluctant to engage and embrace that concept because of, uh, you know, 40 years of, or however, you know, old the person may be, of constantly surrounded by the concept of safety as the ultimate guide for a successful and secure life. So I do think that there is a disadvantage there. And I think that for this reason, this is a very seriously overarching issue. And it's very difficult to deal with because you almost need to unlearn before we can learn. Yeah, that's all uh, great points, Andres. I, I think, speaking for myself, when I've played more aggressively, when I've tried to follow your advice to do that, to your point that you're bringing up about how adults feel about this, it it has a feeling of being reckless, at least somewhat reckless when I go into that mode. It turns out usually being the right move or the right <laughs> uh, way to play the game. And yet, nonetheless, it still feels uh, like there's a component of recklessness to it to me. And I can't help but think that goes to what you're saying, that that's coming from this adult mindset of safety, which is why it might feel that way. Mm. Also, another issue there, and this is why chess is so immensely complex and chess improvement in particular is so damn difficult is because as you said even when you go into a game with that mindset and you try to play something out you first of all feel uncomfortable in it which is by the way the first sign that you are trying to learn a new concept because if it feels comfortable it means you are already familiar with you know the ins and outs of it to a greater degree but more importantly the skill set is not always there entirely to then carry out an entire game or at least a large chunk of a game in that spirit Right. So inevitably, you are going to make mistakes, uh, God forbid, blunders in the process of playing in this new, more aggressive style. And so the self-doubt comes, uh, you know, kicks in. You eventually, you know, might even go as far as losing a game. And by the way, this is one of the biggest um obstacles for a lot of adult improvers my students in particular i notice it that struggle with this not mine in particular i meant that students in general struggle with this who try to grow that when they learn a new concept or when they try to implement a new concept and they lose that particular game when they tried something novel that is supposed to be good that is supposed to be different from how they used to play in their head, they create a combined memory of, oh, I tried that, I lost, it's not good. Mm. Yeah. And that yep. is that becomes, like, I, I'm not a psychologist, I don't understand the psychology of it, but I see this more and more and more often. And it's a really, really harmful thing, because the memory is incredibly strong. It's completely false, but not in their head. It's false in the sense that if I look at that game and I take it apart, 
I can immediately explain to them that the fact that they played in the correct spirit and the fact that they later on down the track blundered a two-move tactic had nothing whatsoever to do with one another, right? And therefore, we should retain the new attitude, the new approach, but play with more care, more calculation, yada, 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 you know the drill. This is this very often does not happen at all because they make this combined memory of I tried it, I lost, and I lost somehow in the subconscious equals it's bad for me. And this is an incredibly tough challenge for us coaches to to conquer because very often you as a coach, especially as a coach, you don't even get to uncover this, right? Like they play a game, they made the memory. And you don't necessarily, you know, get to the depth of the game analysis where you would notice that, ah, right. And I luckily yeah. I did have a fair few students and lessons where they told me stuff like, oh, yeah, I, I did do that. And then I got burnt. And I'm like, hello, those two have nothing whatsoever, nothing to do whatsoever with one another. I tell you a very simple example, right? So a lot of players, when they don't know what to do, let's say in an early middle game scenario where there is an open file on the board and they are castled, they will play pawn h6 or pawn h3 or the equivalent of a luft or just to make sure that I don't get back ring mated. And when I go like, hang on a second, we had pieces still to improve on. We had a plan. We had this, 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 this. Oh, but once I did that and I got back ring mated. And I'm like, (laughs) what does that have to do with the current situation? Like, First of all, you didn't get back rank mated because you didn't open up your back rank. Far more likely, we blundered into a silly tactic which could have been easily avoided. But more importantly, now this example is entirely different. So I probably got lost in the nitty gritty. I've even forgotten what the initial question was. But <laughs> you see where I'm coming with uh, the yeah. immense complexity of um, of the matter of you know playing more aggressively is just uh, you know singling out one issue, but. There are so many other factors that come into play that, um, yeah, impact the outcome of the game. It's it's quite something. Yeah. Well, that actually makes me feel a little better about my struggles with it, knowing how much can go into that problem. With that said, in spite of the complexity of this issue, how do you teach your students to play more aggressively? What methods have, you know, seemed to be effective with the people you're helping? Look, um, obviously, we're talking about... A huge range here, right? Because some students right. come with a very good gusto for attack and understand initiative and so on and their weaknesses lie elsewhere, whereas others are extremely reluctant to cross the third rank with white in the first 20 moves. So there is a huge spectrum to cover and uh, each individual needs a different kind of um, approach. What I do find very interesting, and I almost wanted to tell you this, irrespective of whether you were going there with a question or not. I will make it part of the answer no matter what. That's is, is that even people of, uh, you know, like club-level players who think that they are aggressive attackers very often misunderstand the concept of what an attack looks like in chess, how it's, you know, how it comes to life and how it's meant to be played. Because a lot of people go like, whoo, I like attacking chess, so I'm going to attack. And they sit down every single game going like, I'm going to attack. And that's like, no, you are not. Like, how could you? Like, we don't know what's on the board. Like, being an aggressive attacking player, to my mind, especially on club level, is almost like a a completely false, you know, self-identification. Like, you may have a style that may have a preference 
that you really mm. enjoy attacking. But to rock up to every single game with the in your head that I'm an attacking player, to my mind, causes at least as many problems as not because you need to mm. play the position. And so we need to adjust our needs and desires to what's going on on the board. Like, you know, let's say we pick up the the Sicilian dragon because we love attacking. So our friend is now going to sit down behind the black pieces against D4 thinking, oh, this is going to be a Sicilian dragon and I'm going to checkmate the heck out of them. And then comes E4, C5, C3 and we are in an Alapin and no matter how you twist it or turn it, you are not going to be attacking and in fact it's going to be white having the initiative against almost everything you can throw at them at the, against the Alapin. And so all of a sudden, your initial approach of, ooh, I'm the aggro guy here because my role model is Tal, is out in the window. Or if it's not, then we are going to do something really catastrophic. So first of all, I think the first most important thing is to be mindful of playing the position, not what I would like to do. Hmm. And this is, a, this is a major barrier, especially for players, I would say, between the 1,000 to 1,500 mark. In between there, I see a lot of players who decided that they are attackers and they just, you know, go gung-ho every single game, uh, not really respecting the opponent, but more importantly, what's going on on the board at all. The second thing is, is that, generally speaking, aggression doesn't just, you know fall out of a tree you really need to have a solid understanding of opening concepts opening principles so that already first up you are building toward a position that then is going to allow you to get into aggressive attacking positions and this is by the way where most people fail and it's understandable because if i give you a position where we are one move away from a greek gift sack you will attack really well right but if the bishop is still not on d3, the e4 pawn hasn't been pushed up to e5, and we haven't even noticed that once there is a bishop on d3, a knight on f3, and we open up the diagonal with e5, kicking the f6 defender, then the motif is on, then we can't really talk about attack, right? So we need yeah. to internalize this whole concept of, at first we need to develop, then we need to look at opportunities where I may have what I like to refer to as the initiative, and once we grab that mysterious thing called initiative, when we dictate the tempo of the game, that is the moment that leads into an attack. And very often, there is a huge disconnect for most club-level players between my opening, my current position, and what I would like to do. And that's where... And it's very difficult to teach because it's that in-between phase, right? Like it's not the opening anymore, but it's not ready to attack yet. We need to readjust, optimize piece placement, try to kick a few opponents' pieces. These are all aggressive ideas, but it's not what most people consider aggressive when they think about aggressive chess. Most people think about um, Marshall playing queen g3 and the gold coins are dropping on the board because it's a queen second three <laughs> things can take it, right? But that's yeah. the end of the aggression that's not really the hard part notwithstanding the genius of the move right the beginning yeah. of the aggression when we smell the blood first in the water when we go like whoa i think that op my opponent's move was a bit uh tentative it's time for me to quick a piece and then maybe bring the next one in with the tempo and then we can start talking about attack so it's it's that graduality of the aggression or attack i think that Club-level players struggle to consistently carry out. 
And it's yeah. difficult yeah. to teach in any other way other than looking into full games, like sample games where we see the mistakes committed by the opponent and we see the master carrying out a beautiful attack. Alternatively, our own games where we see that we could have done blah, blah, blah in order to lead to an aggressive attacking stance. Yeah, those are all fantastic points, Andres. That really helps clarify a lot of things for me. Um, even in spite of how much you've probably talked about it already with me in our coaching, it gives me even more insight. Um, there's one part of that that I'd like to expand on a little bit, which is the phrase you use, smelling the blood, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I think I think maybe that's like the other part of playing aggressively. Like one is what you said, well, you know, a lot of what you just described where the position needs to call for it to some degree. But then I also think maybe another part of it is that smell the blood factor where you're kind of always alert to potential mistakes or maybe tentativeness by your opponent and seizing that opportunity. Cause I know that's something that I struggled with. Mm. So I was wondering if you could speak to maybe that side of playing aggressively where you kind of develop this radar for when your opponent just, you know, sort of created the opportunity for you to be aggressive. Yeah. Look, I'd like to talk about this because it's a, I feel it's a slightly, controversial issue or the way how I like to think about it is perhaps a bit controversial but I also think that it's a it's a really good way to think about chess and this particular question and my approach to this is is that I always 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 encourage my student to be incredibly judgmental when they are playing a game and when I'm saying judgmental in particular I'm referring to the opponent's moves Right. And this is a very difficult mentality to put yourself into because we live in a day and age where judging others is really a no go. Right. Like you, <laughs> you are really, really getting put in a bad box slash canceled when you do nothing else but can, you know, judging others. But chess demands constant evaluation of your moves and your opponents. And evaluating your opponent's move is virtually the same as judging. And I like the wording of judging because it forces your brain to call a spade a spade. So when you receive a move from your opponent, then you did not anticipate at all. That means that usually speaking, it's either something really good and we blundered or it's something really bad and the game is on. But if you are hesitant to call it and you just leave it in that gray area of, oh, well, I didn't see this coming, but okay, let's see. And you immediately start thinking about your response without actually giving it its credit in terms of, I need to evaluate this. And I also encourage people, by the way, to really be blunt. Like, that's rubbish. It can't be right. Because as soon as you say it, your response to it, by default, is already down to a very narrow path, right? Because if my opponent's move I'm calling rubbish, or at least it looks really sus, that narrows down my candidate moves to a very select few because by default it means I need to look for punishment, right? It means that they left an opening for me and there is no time for hesitation. If you do not do that, however, and you just take it like, yep, my opponent just made a move, then the pool of candidate moves open up, uh, opens up to a really wide range of moves because we didn't use our opponent's last move as a guidepost. And so I really insist on doing this, that every single time, fairly early on, mid to late opening, sometimes even early if you're out of the book early on, always have an anticipated move in your head from your opponent. Like, you should never ever have a situation in chess where your opponent played a move 
and in your head there is blankness like you didn't like you should have an anticipated <laughs> move right and then yeah. you need to check in with yourself where your opponent's move sits versus what you anticipated and that's when the judgment call needs to happen and by the way it's totally okay to misjudge who cares like that's part of the learning process it's very easy that you're going to go like oh that's actually really rubbish and then later on you realize that actually that move really did have a lot of value that's fine because that's the only way to actually hone this skill to perfection like every skill you need to do it a lot of times and you need to fail a lot of lot of times in order to improve it but the first step is to get into the habit of you know regularly checking in with yourself did i expect that no is it because it's that good? No. Oh, yeah, actually, it's not developing, not center. It seems to do nothing. Action time, baby. And a lot of people don't have this built in, this mechanism of constantly checking, evaluating, judging, and then respond accordingly. It's very awkward at first because it feels like you are judging your opponent. But it has nothing to do with that. It's simply a way how you think inside your head. The way, uh, right. the same way how you go shopping, you add up the prices in your head and you go like, whoa, that's a bit too much for this week's groceries. Maybe I shouldn't get the salmon. So, like, you know, no offense meant to the right. shop. It's like the price is what it was last week. It's totally fine. I went a bit over the top. Let's put that item back on the shelf. The same way, you know, it's like the same guy or, you know, whatever, same rated guy as you are. It's not judging them. You are just judging the game for your own sake so that you have the most information you can get from the game and in order to find out the best way to continue. So a second issue that I wanted to bring up was one we've kind of already talked about a little bit, but maybe we can dive into it a bit more. Uh, and that is being too concerned, me being too concerned, <laughs> maybe others, about losing material. Um, you know, there were several times in games that we went over that I'd make a move to protect uh, a threatened pawn when I could have just ignored that quote unquote threat and just initiated an attack. So my question for you is how do you get out of that mindset? Like, okay, so that's clearly a problem adults have especially, <laughs> but how do you get out of that mindset of being too material, too materially oriented? Uh, is it, is it playing gambits? Is it something else? Look, playing gambits is only going to fix it um, a little bit because if it, you play a gambit, and it's quite paradoxical, by the way, because you are immediately giving up material, but somehow very often people's minds work like, oh, that's a gambit, it has been approved, it has a name, so that's fine, I will do that, even if it's, mm -hmm. by the way, a pretty dodgy one. And then in a completely <laughs> winning position in the same game, they would not, for the love of God, consider giving up a pawn for an incredibly strong attack, because there is no immediate feedback and reassurance that it's going to work. Whereas, oh yeah, I know that the king's bishop gambit is an opening, so it's totally fine to give up a pawn and castling right on move three because it has a name, and so let's do it, yee <laughs> And, you know, 10 yeah. moves down the track, we don't give up a pawn for a force mate because we couldn't calculate it or we didn't sense the tempo of the game. So even gambits are not going to fix this problem. The issue here... Is, is that once again, uh, going back to safety, is, is that a lot of people find it very easy to constantly fall back onto what they fear and know best, which is adding up the numbers and more is better than less. And because of it never fails, because you never fail to add up the numbers correctly, right? Or 
well, hardly ever. Right. Like you, you can count precisely how many pawns you have and they do. This seems to be an incredibly safe measure for, you know, providing a guidepost as to what's going on on the board. And this is very, very tangible, right? Like there is no vague concepts here. The issue at hand is, is that we need to contrast this with vague concepts, initiative, attack, superior development, bishop pay, yada, yada, yada. None of this has any tangible value to someone who, you know, really values materialistic things and understands the value of more is better than less. And so once right. again, this is a complete unlearn, relearn procedure. And it's a really challenging one for many. But when I even just sense that this is the case with students that I teach, especially with young ones, I go real hard on emphasizing that when we are evaluating, especially middle game scenarios, where there is a, a potential you know, line to occur where we sacrifice material for initiative and it's difficult to calculate move by move because it's quite dense. Then the evaluation process is, is that we never start with the material. Never. That's the last, not the first. And whenever I mm. say that, a giant shock and pale faces and like, what do you mean last? I mean, exactly what I just said. That that is the last thing I want to hear. And so we get into the habit first of analyzing a position completely back to front as far as their current mindset is concerned. Not as far as mine concerned, but as far as theirs is concerned. Because they want to say that we are pulling down. Uh-oh. Whereas I'm like, <laughs> I'm not interested. I know that. It's on the board right in front of me. I can count them. I don't care. That's not a relevant information for me right now. What is relevant for me is that my opponent's knight is still on b8, which means the rook on a8 still can't move. So we have got at least three moves now to hurt them real hard. Can we do that? And so all of a sudden, the evaluation shifts very heavily. And by the way, here I am going to touch already on something that you wanted to ask later on, from the mm -hmm. static to the dynamic. Right. Yeah. So that is one example, although usually static, we talk about positional features such as uh, bone structure, potential piece placement, piece, you know, those types of things and material to some degree versus the dynamic, which is an ongoing attack, an unfolding attack, an ongoing initiative or a badly exposed king. And so when we are contrasting these things, it's becoming very difficult because they, they don't overlap. It's like alike fractions, right? Like when you first teach yeah. a kid how to add up a half to one third, it makes no sense. In an ideal world, it doesn't for them because they realize that they are two totally different things and they just can't, you know, tessellate. Like they can't fit into one another. So we need to find a different way to to figure out what's going on here. But unlike with fractions, which you can then organize in a way that they will become, you know, workable and uh, you can figure it out, with chess, it never is going to become <laughs> uh, like for like because material is never going to be comparable correctly to initiative and attack. Another hint for those who are early on on their journey, but they already feel the pressure of this constant materialistic mindset is, is that I'm a huge believer that anyone and everyone should start out their chess journey on Paul Morphy. Because if you do mm. that, it is almost naturally going to come to you that material is the last thing 
that matters in chess, right? Like every single person who has this issue should immediately go back to the drawing board and go through the game Morphe Consultants, right? And immediately you are going to find an abundance of examples in just that in one game where it's beautifully highlighted that uh, preferring initiative, attack, and development has so much greater value than grabbing pawns. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. It, this is, and it needs to be reinforced. Like, like everything in chess, this is not going to come easy. But if you are open to the idea of you want to pursue the attack rather than counting the material, and that's what you always hear, then inevitably... And eventually, I think there is a tipping point when you start, you know, changing to the right team <laughs> and uh, <laughs> play with more of an appropriate mindset. Uh, the, the other thing is, is by the way, in this whole matter, is fear of loss. Mm-hmm. It, it's, yep. it's an incredibly important part of this package that I am done material, I'm losing. I don't want that. And here I need to, again, refer back to kids as much as I probably shouldn't because it makes the whole, you know, conversation gives it a different angle. But in general, I think we can safely say that kids are far less worried about losing than adults are. And as a result of that, their ability to take risk is far higher, especially because they don't even understand that they are taking risks. For them, it's fun. And that's exactly, by the way... What favoring, you know, attack, aggression, and the spectacular style really should be. It's fun. Like, you shouldn't even think about what if it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you don't buy a Ferrari thinking that the engine is going to fail. It might, but that ruins the fun, right? So, <laughs> let's first figure out how this thing works and, you know, uh, drive it around in the streets and, you know, enjoy the, the, <laughs> the, the music of the engine, the handling. And, you know, if it turns out that, well, mechanically or whatever, it's not put together well, then we will look into fixing it. But it's meant to be fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, you know, there's so much... Uh, <laughs> great advice that you gave there, Andres. Uh, there's two things that stand out to me that you said. One was uh, that ma- counting material, for example, is in a completely different category than paying attention to dynamic variables. And I think that that's a really helpful concept because uh, I think that's why we kind of gravitate towards the material count, right? Like you can quantify it, you can put a number attached to it, mm-hmm. so you can have some kind of certainty to what's going on whereas dynamic requires is a little more it's a lot more loose and seems to require more uh advancement perhaps to understand those things and so i understand why we would gravitate towards that so i think just wanted to mention that i think that's a really great way of saying it which is that they're in different completely different categories and they don't really overlap very well i think that helps people understand maybe why you might favor material as a way to look at the game and also why it's just difficult to see it differently that's right. Here is another thing that you can always use, and I will let you move on, by the way, just a very quick check-in method oh, here or, or, or thought. Think about it this way. If materialistic or, you know, counting material would be the guidepost for every single decision, and by default it led to the correct decision, right, then every mm-hmm. second chess player who ever learned the game would be grandmaster level player. Because it's so easy. 
the whole beauty of the game of chesses is that there are so many variables, as you put it, and many of them are not quantifiable. And generally speaking, they weigh a lot heavier than the material, which is precisely what makes the game hard but also what makes the game beautiful. But we already should have a level of self-doubt that if we are counting material too often as our general guidepost as to what's going on, that perhaps we are on the wrong track because let's be honest with ourselves, everyone can do that. Yeah, uh, very well said. Um, So the next category of challenges that I had that I wanted to discuss that I think will help others is concerning calculation. I have a couple of different Areas <laughs> to touch on here. <laughs> oh yeah, the evergreen um, topics are coming in one after the next. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Calculation is huge. I know that's definitely a universal topic for people uh, that they're all everyone's trying to improve in their calculation skills. Specifically for me, one one challenge that I noted that kept coming up in our coaching was that I wasn't calculating enough different lines. It wasn't about just going deeper into one, but rather considering more lines to calculate. Does Improving at that problem start with just considering more candidate moves at the outset? Is that basically kind of how you begin solving that issue? Look, yes, I suppose to some degree, yes. I think it's a little bit more complex of a problem because half of the time you will find that um, the calculation doesn't break down because on move one, we pick the wrong candidate. But equally importantly, because we pick the correct candidate, we start calculating, but then within the branches, we don't consider necessarily enough moves. The problem here at hand is is that, yes, there is a giant, giant skill difference between, let's say, a grandmaster in the 1800s, Captain Obvious here, by mm-hmm. the way, in terms of how deeply they calculate, but... One can't help but observe that the the even more obvious difference between a very good player and a rookie is, is that a very good player within 10 seconds with most positions can very easily narrow down the right candidate moves to two to three tops, hmm. right? So one of the biggest differences that you will find between a um, a really strong player, let's say a grandmaster and a 1600 is, is that they look at any given position, any, and they will be able to tell you within 10 seconds with a remarkable accuracy, by the way, uh, the top three candidate moves. <laughs> and that simply comes from very good understanding, very good um, sense for, you know, chess position structures, yada, yada, yada. So that's years of experience. And you might feel like I'm dodging the question, but then they start calculating and they are already ahead of the pack by billions of kilometers because they managed to completely eliminate, you know, an awful lot of work that was completely wasted because they did not reckon with candidate moves that were inappropriate. The other thing is, is that I think it really does help to be aware of every time you calculate as to what your objective is. So if it's a kingside attack, you will calculate lines that are very aggressively going after your target. If you are calculating a complicated capturing sequence, then you need to ensure that you are covering all the potential move order deviations because while it might might work in a particular order, it might not in another. So if your opponent throws in a little bit of a curveball by recapturing the opposite way or taking a different piece in a sequence, you have to be 100% ready for that. So it's a little bit circumstantial, I feel. Um, 
as to how you know why do you calculate i find that in general it's more the opposite that the, the depth is uh hmm. well with okay. and depth really it, it goes from person to person but usually on one end of the spectrum we tend to fall short okay Interesting. I feel like I fall short on both. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you will find that that is the most common case, by the way. Okay. But, but uh, um, let, let, me ask, let, let me tell you one more thing, though. So sure. the width of calculation is not a calculating skill. Hmm. Right? Okay. I, I, I really want to emphasize this. I just figured this out, by the way, right now. So I feel like, oh, man, I, I just hammered this. Because yeah. basically the width of calculation is the way how you organize your candidate moves, right? So width means is that on the move, whatever you are on, you have got five candidates instead of the previously mentioned two or three. The reason for that is, is because your radar for what's right and what's not is not effective enough. So you are going to pick moves for candidates that are inappropriate, which are not matching the criteria of what you want to do. E.g., we are conducting a kingside attack, and you would like to open up your back rank with pawn h3. That's not a candidate move, right? Not an appropriate one. Yeah. And so here we are actually overlapping a little bit with positional understanding, dynamic understanding, understanding the structure, the opening perhaps, and so on. And so that width covered for you in the sense that you eliminate a lot of potential moves that you don't want to calculate, not by calculating them, but by your understanding of chess. I see. Right? So when you are calculating what is the right move for a minority attack, should I play rook b1 first and then b4, or should I play a3 and then b4, b5, that is within the realm of the minority attack. If you want to play rook c1, let's say in a Karlsbad structure, then I'm like... How is that like a candidate move? Like we are talking minority attack, right? So that's a very good example to immediately showcase that without calculation, we can work with width. So it's not necessarily Mm. a calculating skill to narrow the width or God forbid to open it up because once you understand what the objective is, then you can, you know, immediately align the right uh, candidate moves. And then comes the depth which is perhaps the harder one, where you just need to get into the calculating the line as precisely as you can and evaluating it as precisely as you can. Yeah, yeah. That's a great insight that width isn't directly uh, like a calculation skill. I hadn't thought about that, uh, clearly, since I put it under the ca- the category of calculation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, look, I had to think it through too to, to realize that it's it's not a you know not everything that uh, shines or sprinkles or sparkles rather is is gold here so yes that's not necessarily calculating yeah yeah that's a great insight though nonetheless still on the subject of calculation though another area that you had me work on was calculating faster one approach that you had recommended for me at least just me individually uh was to do some puzzle rush alongside my I guess you could say, quote unquote, slower calculation practice. Uh, and I did find that the puzzle rush did help me do a little better at, at calculating faster. Um, but I'm curious kind of what what you would just advise maybe generally or, or for improving calculation speed, if that's, if that's one of the best ways or if there's other ways to consider for people listening. Um, I was thinking about this question and um, I don't know if I did tell you that, but if I did, I would revise my idea now. Hmm. Okay. Um, and by the way, on this note, I always try to 
you know, like being a coach is a very funny situation because you take it granted that here I am, the guy who wants to get better. And so I go to the guy who is good. Mm -hmm. Right. And hopefully both good at chess and teaching chess. But I really find it very interesting. And the more I do it, the more I realize that us coaches need to evolve an awful lot. And I don't know if I do, but I try because we come across new problems. We come across new students, new skill sets. And although in general, you know, we have a very good idea of what things tend to break down and how to fix them. But I do think that it's very important to reflect on what we coaches do and see how we can improve and better ourselves. And perhaps this is an an opportunity for me (laughs) because I wanted to tell you exactly Exactly that, that I thought about it the other day because I funnily enough did do a few puzzle rushes and I realized that I don't calculate puzzle rush at all. And by at all, I, okay, I'm, I'm exaggerating. Like I'm using about 2% of my calculating skills in puzzle rush. All right. Yeah. And the remaining 98 is pattern recognition. Now you will realize that rated, pl- sorry, title players, especially IMs, GMs, and, you know, very strong GMs, their pattern recognition is absolutely insane, <laughs> right? Yeah. So when we talk pattern recognition uh, with adult improvers and club players, you're talking about mate patterns and night folks and basic stuff, right? But here we are talking yeah. about thousands and thousands of motifs, piece alignments that they once see and it's engraved in their head, in their brain forever, right? Like they are never, ever going to miss one. I'm going to right. give you a very famous example. Uh, Petrosian, Spassky, um, Petrosian plays queen h8, second uh, queen on an empty square. King has to take, there is an opponent, queen on e5. Your viewers will look it up. I will repeat, Petrosian, Spassky. And then comes the knight captures rook with a fork on the queen. So he regains the material with interest, wins the game. And a GM sees that when they are, you know, up and coming players and it's engraved and they will never, ever miss a beat on that. And Puzzle Rush is fundamentally based on your ability of recall of patterns. When you get to the tail end, there is a little bit of calculation, but even there it's limited. So I am actually now far more geared toward a different method, which I have been doing with students, which is that I make them solve uh, force checkmate puzzles. It doesn't matter where you get your source. It can be done on .com. It can be done on Leeches as well. I do both. Uh, both of them have got uh, very, very good uh, pools now to pick from. Um, and you just do them. And the reason why I love specifically the mate ones is because it, it is quite a controlled environment. So it's not like a white move and win and you go like, I don't even know where to start. You know that you have an objective. So that narrows down right away your candidates So here the problem of the width is eliminated. So we only need to work with precise calculation. And then you are forced into calculating all the forcing lines. So it also teaches you the incredibly important and often overlooked or underutilized method of calculating forcing lines, checks, captures, threats. It sounds like a broken record, boy, every lesson it comes up five times that we just miss that method all the time. And uh, solving forcing mate problems teaches you incredibly well the habit of calculating forcing lines well 
accurately, precisely, and quite in depth too, because these make puzzles very often have branching lines where the king can go this way or that way, and there's a different mate for either. In this regard, it's also quite good that these puzzles are not by default themed to a particular mate pattern. All of them are from games between humans, and some are quite unique. So very often, especially with mates in fours and fives, your pattern recognition is only going to kick in once you start calculating, or sometimes it is only going to kick in because the initial position doesn't give away any patterns at all. But once you hit upon the correct idea, do you realize that, oh, and then two moves down the track, it's going to be a whatever, Anastasia's mate or whatever. You get my gist. Right. And then here comes the calculating faster component. Calculating faster for the sake of speed is purposely, uh, sorry, fully and entirely a waste of time, right? The purpose of you calculating faster is because fast calculation by default, if you can do that, is proficient. Yeah. Right? So you have never seen a person ever calculating really, really quickly And yet every single move they calculated was garbage. That doesn't happen, right? (laughs) Because if that is the case, they don't calculate fast because they know their limitations, they know their skills, and so they take it slowly, right? It's almost like, it's the same as driving, right? If you're not a confident driver, you're not going to go 200 on the highway because you just don't think you can do that, right? So you slow down. Once you build confidence, you will drive faster. The same thing happens with chess calculation. You don't become faster because you're so awesome at speed. You become faster because you're more proficient. And so in this regard, but, you know, you can't tell someone that, "Mm, I think you should calculate more proficiently. But if if you associate it with the speed, because something that is something you can feel, right? Like You inevitably notice yourself that, wow, man, I cracked it pretty fast. Yeah. And that's an awesome feedback. You you don't go like, wow, man, I solved this. Because that is not something that you wouldn't have done in the past. You have solved mating trees in the past too. But now you go like, whoa, I was pretty quick with this. And so then I take it to give yourself five minutes and see how many you can solve. Right. 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 But even here, there is a little bit of a trickery to it. And again, self-checking is the best rather than relying on the numbers because you might come across a puzzle that has like seven side variations. You know, that's probably an exaggeration, but you get my point. Whereas there is another one, which is a one straight line, a super basic single calculation. Whereas another one will have, you know, multiple branches that you need to double check and so on. So even that is a bit misleading, but the self-check-in with you feeling that, mm, I think I'm getting the gist of it, like it's getting more confident, more fluid, less blur, I see the position clearly, that type of feedback, self-feedback, I think is quite valuable. You don't get that with Puzzle Rush. And I also don't like the concept of rushing it, like as soon as you get one wrong, you should stop. Puzzle Rush doesn't teach you to do that. Most people don't even check their mistakes afterward. So Puzzle Rush is really Puzzle Rush is really good if you would like to check with your pattern recognition. But otherwise, I would advise you, and Puzzle Rush is associated with .com, so I'm going to follow that path now, that you go to their puzzle database and you just pick out, now you can pick out mating threes, fours, fives, whatever your skill set is, and take it from there. 
Well, that's a great discussion on uh, calculating faster and what's involved with that. So the third and final question I have for you on calculation uh, is a subject that we discussed a bit earlier, which was calculating depth. I think there's maybe perhaps a couple of different reasons why a person might not calculate deep enough as they should. Um, one that frequently came up for me was that after I would calculate maybe two, three moves tops deep and then evaluate. And as you would say, just basically evaluate based on a story rather than calculating any further to explain why I should or shouldn't go down a line. Um, so I know that this storytelling that we do <laughs> as club players, especially is, is pretty common. So, uh, how do you get out of that habit? Which I, I see as something that kind of, I mean, it has several problems, but one is it definitely can stop you from calculating further. This is a tough one, uh, Daniel. And generally speaking, I have had uh, serious struggles with this with multiple students, many, most, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, this is probably one of the worst habits to have in the sense that it's not really a habit. It is something that we all need to overcome and it requires an incredible amount of willpower. And the, and mm. what I'm going to tell you now is what I also say a lot to other people too. Sounds a little bit cruel, but the issue at hand here often is is that people are capable of calculating deeper than what they give credit for themselves. But there are multiple yeah. things here at hand that make them um, not do that. The number one is is that they don't trust their calculation. The number two, which is even more important, is is that it's uncomfortable. It doesn't feel like they want to not do that. And it's a very ugly thing to say, but it's exactly that. And I have got an analogy for you. I was thinking about it as uh, you were asking the question. It may be false, but I will go with it anyway because I think it's it's gonna it, it's gonna hit home. Uh, sometimes when I do cardio in the gym, I go to the stairs machine. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It's basically uh, three steps of stairs yeah. constantly coming against you. So basically, it imitates you climbing stairs. Now, when I am in a you know when I'm fit enough, I can easily spend 50 minutes on that, right? But Every single time I go on that dreaded machine, at about the five-minute mark, there is an incredibly strong pressure on me where I hit fatigue and my brain just goes like, ah, man, stuff this, leave it, go to the treadmill. It's easier. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I'm, like, I'm 99.9% tempted to just give in and go, like, too hard. Even though I know that I can do that, but by the way, it doesn't always happen like that. Like initially I didn't, I just kept on expanding the time I spent on it. But there is this very strong urge to go like, oh, I can just do treadmill instead. It's easier. It's still going to burn the same calories. Why to bother? And I do think that perhaps not so consciously, but a very similar feeling slash thought slash devil creeps into people's mind when they start calculating and at the first time when it gets too fuzzy too complex too everything you go like nah can't do let's just do instead this and this is gonna be just as fine it it is not meant to feel comfortable like this is i think the main point i want to deliver right that this is not something that is joyful or that you're going to you know get kicks out of it's a struggle And it's meant to be because once again, if it was easy, everyone would be a grandmaster. So you must embrace this. 
a point where you start calculating, you hit a wall and you go like, I can't do this. That is the point when you need to tell yourself that, yeah, I may not be able to do it, but I'm going to try anyway. And you just persist. And and this is also why it sucks, because inevitably, the first few attempts quite likely will fail, right? So we are going to yeah. lose a game, and then we go back, by the way, to what I said to you about 40 minutes ago, about making wrong memories of, oh, I calculated and then I lost, so it didn't, that it doesn't work, so I don't do that again. Whereas the reality is that, no, 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 that's not why you lost. The reason why I lost is because you started down the right path, but you didn't quite manage to follow through all the way. So let's go down again on the right path, Try it again until it succeeds. But once we again right. go back to the wrong associations of events and cause and effect, it can easily turn around. And it does happen a lot, by the way, with players. Uh, oh, I calculated the line, I miscalculated, it was bad, so I better not engage again with deep lines because I suck. That's never going to fix anything, right? So it's uncomfortable. And it doesn't promise immediate success. These two things together would deter most people from doing anything at all. And rightly so. Right? <laughs> right? It's, yeah. it's like someone telling you that, hey, here is a shovel, start digging. And I might pay you in the end, but I might not. Like, hello. Like, <laughs> hey, I'm not really selling this work business for me. Like, uh, thank you, but I would much yeah. rather watch telly. Right? So yeah. it's understandable that it doesn't exactly sound like a siren song. But unfortunately, proof is there that this is the only way to get better at it. And once you do get better at it, the reward will be immense, which is measurable in several hundred rating points. Not that I like to measure any success in that, but inevitably you would like to pride yourself when you, you know, make a big leap. Right. Well, that's enticing to me, several hundred points. So that's, that's really yeah. enough. So unfortunately, we have to just embrace the ugly reality that it's uncomfortable and it's not promising immediate success. And yet, the only thing you can do <laughs> is to try to force yourself into doing it. Yeah. I, you know, as you say that, I think it dawned on me that that's perhaps why I and maybe others do the storytelling because it's just, it's more tempting. It's easier. It's easier just to say. Oh, precisely. Yeah, yeah, it's the easy way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's like it's live through and through. Like, why don't I have a six pack? Oh, because, you know, I don't have enough time to go to the gym. No, that's not why I don't have a six pack. It's because I eat rubbish. Right, right. It's that simple. Like, you know, and the same goes to like, oh, I didn't calculate this because of this, this, this. Nah, unfortunately. But in chess, of course, we have far better reasons why we avoid it. Like, it's quite actually cunning how creative and resourceful people are when it comes to trying to justify why they didn't calculate it's actually quite amazing like i often go like wow <laughs> that that is a really compelling story you're telling me i'm not buying it but it's really good like i do see why they don't why they fall to the temptation because they're incredibly creative in you know coming up with various <laughs> stories and set stories never the same Never. Like, you will find that there's always a different narrative for why we didn't do the right thing. <laughs> it's quite right. quite insanely uh, cool. But nonetheless, um, yeah. The, <laughs> and by the way, the, the best measure of that is, is which I always say, well, sorry, the best fix to that, which I always say a million times in my YouTube videos, is, is that if your decision making is not based on calculation, evaluation, compare, contrast, almost certainly it's wrong. Unless it's a fundamentally positional call like, oh, I did this because I have a good night bad bishop. 
I, uh, that is a very matter of fact statement that is of equal value to I calculated knight takes bishop takes queen check king h8 queen f7 and I'm having a winning attack right like they are like for like right. in the sense that they are very factual that but but the oh it didn't feel safe because my king was a little bit exposed that's not facts like here we are losing touch with reality because that's either an issue that black or your opponent can exploit by and then comes a line which is factual or they cannot in which case again there comes a line that will prove that you are far better and the fact that your king is exposed is irrelevant right exactly I uh, just kind of want to move on from my own challenges and discussing those with you. And hopefully those are all great lessons that, that everyone can learn from. Uh, and uh, now move on to asking you several questions on behalf of my Twitter followers, um, some improvement challenges and questions that they had. So I have uh, four here for you. The first one is from uh, the username is Juan de Leon. He asks, when analyzing our own games with no coach or assistance from a better player, how can we find the moves or plans, considering that our understanding or thinking process is limited to the same patterns or habits as when we played? Yeah. Uh, this is a re- I think I know your answer. This is a really, <laughs> really tough one. This, this is a, a really, really tough one because, like, you know, what I do... Is, is that I help people with exactly that. So now you're asking me, and I, if I'm good at something, my, I might be reasonably okay at that, right? Now you're asking me what's ha- what happens when you remove the me. And I don't want to say that that's all I know because that's not quite right. But we now have created a really, really difficult issue, um, which... I don't know if I have really good answers to as to uh, what I can guarantee you is that learning is going to be slowed down drastically. And it sucks to say that, but I don't want to offer you false promises. The, the obvious answer to this is to go to the engine, but the engine is only going to be helpful as far as telling you that your move was rubbish and it's going to tell you what the right move was. Now, at this point, depending on your chess skill, your ability to understand chess, your learning skills, a whole lot of outside of chess things as well will come into play. You may or may not understand rather well what the nature of your mistake was and why the better move was better than what it was. The reason why I don't really believe in this wholeheartedly is because I'm a big believer of getting to the bottom of things. And by that, what I mean is is that let's assume that we played a very tentative, timid move instead of a very aggressive one. Uh, even if we then look at the engine evaluation without the help of a coach and the, the, the good move says, okay, so you should have played bishop g4 instead of bishop d7 because one does nothing, the other one creates a pin, blah, blah, blah. And then almost inevitably, the thought process goes on to, oh, I needed to create a pin. And the thought process doesn't go at all to what I think is at least as, if not even more important, which is the, yeah, that's fine. But why did we play the bad move? What was it that made you go Bishop D7? 
Is it because we don't understand peace activity or uh, aggressive versus passive? Do we have the tendency to chicken out in positions where we need to go aggressive? And this is where we almost go into a, an analysis of the person rather than the chess, right? Because we need to fix the person's thinking. We need to rewire the brain. And that is incredibly difficult, Right, like in any walks of life, like imagine a classroom full of seven-year-old children trying to learn spelling without a teacher being present in the classroom. Is it impossible? Not quite. Is it mighty difficult? Yes, it is. So I really would like to offer, you know, helpful advice here, but I feel like I'm falling short. Yes, the engine can and will help you, but the extent of it, I, I'm not going to stand for that. Well, I mean, I can speak to that a little bit because there was, a I don't know how many months, but maybe even close to a year before I got any coaching help at all. And so the only thing I had to help me was the engine. So I, I know what that feels like versus getting coaching help. And it's night and day. And hmm. basically everything that I learned from the coach, from coaches, from you and Dan Heisman, none of that I learned from, from an engine. Like you, you two taught me everything like independent of that. And not only was it night and day in terms of the fact that what you taught me um, was nothing the engine ever did, but also the quantity was like a hundredfold. Like I learned a hundred times more oh, of from course. you. Yeah. Yeah. Then, you know, like one hour with you was more valuable than a thousand hours with an engine. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, I mean, from what I understand, what you're saying, Andres, is just that like it, you're, you're extremely limited in what you can accomplish when it's just you and you're not getting that helpful assistance. Yes, that is precisely. But because of I like to be a problem solver, I'm going to give you one piece of advice that I think does work really well, that kind of allows you to, to circumvent the, the coach and the finance issues, if that's the angle. Um, the best alternative to not having a coach is to regularly frequent a chess club where there is a very good chess culture of not just people pressing clocks and playing games, but the desire to better themselves by sitting down after the game and analyze. Sit down with anyone better than you, anyone. And it doesn't matter how much better they are as long as they are, or even like-minded, you know, and just try to figure it out together it is inevitably going to be more useful than not. It's very far from optimal, but it's far better than nothing. Just being surrounded by like-minded people and chess environment and just hearing people talk about, oh, I thought this line, I was thinking along these lines, I wanted to pursue a kingside attack. Just, you know, this atmosphere helps a lot. And generally speaking, unlike coaching, it's free, like you will hardly cost anything. Yeah. So yeah, that is that my recommendation. If push comes to shove and coach is entirely off the table, join a chess club and just try to surround yourself as often as possible with chess playing people and just listen, engage, analyze, play, and try to soak it all in. Second question comes from username and uh, Dr. Fran. She asks, what's the difference between training tactics and calculation can you do both at once or should you separate the two things? How would you suggest a beginner to start to train calculation? I think maybe we could start with the first two parts of that, like distinguishing between tactics and calculation and can you do both at once or should you separate the two? Right. So um, I'm a very, very big uh, advocate of the concept that as soon as we have pieces on a chessboard, 
irrespective of the concept, uh, the context, I can turn that in five seconds into a calculating exercise. So you can practice calculation through anything and everything. It can be opening, middle game, end game. It can be puzzles. It can be end game studies. It can be anything. And in fact, I do do that as best as I can help it with my students so that when we try to practice and improve our calculation, we don't always solve puzzles from a puzzle book. We can perfectly well solve an endgame study, King and Pawn Endings, which often is uh, an excellent um, stepping stone into, um, you know, bettering your calculating skills because it's a mini environment where there are no more pieces on the board, so it's easier to calculate, but usually depth is greater. So you often need to calculate 8, 10, 12 moves ahead to correctly evaluate it. And that teaches you, again, really good habits. And it helps you to improve your skills in a mini environment with far fewer pieces. On the other hand, for beginners, it's very important to put an incredible amount of emphasis on tactics. And by that, I mostly mean patterns, tactical patterns and pattern recognition, because that's how tactics come about, that you've realized that, oh, those two pieces I line up, here comes a skewer. Um, so it's very important that we do both. But once we go into the club-level adult improver genre, uh, or rather segment, I very often find that people are way too narrow-minded in terms of what they do in order to practice calculation. Like, literally, you open up a chess book, you look at the first diagram, I can guarantee you that there is a lot to calculate there. And it doesn't say white move and win, it doesn't say mate in five. You just look at it, you go, what would I do here with white? And then you start calculating lines, you, you calculate what black would do, and ta-da! Like, it doesn't have to be a, a checkmate puzzle. What would you do here? What is the line? What is the evaluation? Bang! That was your calculation exercise, and it didn't have to be at all a checkmate puzzle. Again, we have talked about, you know, nurturing the skills of being able to calculate forcing lines. So it's very important to sprinkle in uh, puzzles, checkmate puzzles even, that feed that instinct of, you know, checks, captures, threats, the aggressive moves first. That's a different story, of course. But what I'm saying is, is that that by no means is the only way. Uh, to improve your calculating skills. Uh, third question is from Twitter user Morocco. He asks, "Is as an improver in his 50s, I try hard to improve my calculation and visualization ability, but I feel like I'm chasing my tail. I often miss the obvious. Should I accept that I got older and shift my focus on other aspects of training? What could be more beneficial? Obviously, I could lie, but I don't want to. Uh, age is not helping you. It doesn't help me either. So I'm not getting better either. So I'm just trying to keep my nose above the water as well in sense of, you know, trying to retain my skills. And obviously, when you are coming from the learning and like, as in you're just getting into it, you know, and 50 is by no means old, but age is going to play a factor. However, I'm very, very firmly in belief and I'm advising you to not to give up fight it just like everything else because a you are going to uh make progress a hundred percent even if it's hard earned and it's a lot of work but it will be worth it and two simply because it is a marvelous way to you know retain mental freshness to just you know 
stay fit. It's, it's the same mentally fit. It's the same with, you know, I'm feeling like I'm not as fit as I used to be in my 20s. Should I just give up fitness at all? No. <laughs> On right. the contrary, yeah. you should actually try to do more so that the slowing process and the aging process is slowed down as much as possible and your body is constantly reminded that, no, nah, no, nah, this guy is meant to be fit as heck. Same goes for chess. Push it as hard and as far as you can in terms of calculation. And if you fail, try again, fail, try again, and you are going to get better. I think the most important thing for any adult improver, and I think I spoke about this in another podcast, is to to really, really go gentle on yourself when you set your goals and your expectations toward yourself. Yeah. Because yeah. very often I find that people turn away from chess very bitterly because they set too high goals too soon and they just felt like they were chasing their tails exactly and they never made any progress, especially when they compared it to where they wanted to be. So set far yeah. shorter term goals, not long ones. And, um, you know, try to just embrace that it's one small step of a time. That's yeah. how every big journey starts. Yeah, great advice. I, you know, I found that as I looked at like what a lot of adult improvers will comment on when they talk about this issue, there seems to be a bit too much, and I think you spoke to this, Andres, a bit too much uh, defeatism where they sort of equate, uh, oh, well, if I can't improve at the same pace that I did when I was 20 or 15, then that means I can't improve at all. And it, it's not the same thing, right? Like a slower pace of improvement is still improvement. So anyway, that's how yeah, I exactly, like exactly, it. yeah, and the right. the other important thing, enjoy the process, right? So you are doing chess because you like it, right? So whilst you are doing it, if you are not having pleasure out of it, then you know that's a problem. So I, I did have a YouTube video about this when I talked about how to avoid burnout in chess, and this is one of the most important advice I've ever come up with, which is to try to avoid. Um, goal, like outcome oriented goals, right? Like the, I want to be 1600. I want to be able to hit 25 on puzzle rush. I want to be able to now enjoy the process and instead set goals to yourself. Like I would like to work through this book, right? Or yeah. I would like to, um, go through Alec Hines 300 selected games. Like set yourself goals that obviously are meaningful in terms of improving your chess but they are process-driven, not outcome-driven. That is a, an ultimate way to avoid bitterness, burnout, disappointment, and so on. Yeah, that is fantastic. Final question comes from Twitter user Sir Rukski. He asks, my question concerns the relative benefit of working through several thousand high-quality tactical, positional, and game puzzles in Woodpecker style. Will drilling these types of high-quality puzzle sets to the point of memorization significantly improve chess ability? Um, yeah, I did see this question, and um, that was a really deep one that needed a lot of thought. Uh, I don't want to <laughs> yeah. sound like I'm avoiding the answer, but I would say that it's individual. Like, it might help some more than others. But what I did think about and what I thought would be a very meaningful response to this is, is that I it, it really does sound like a, an industrial method to something that is meant to have, you know, serious amount of thought, 
process outcome and so on attached to it like it just really feels like uh, an artificial environment yeah where just solve five million puzzles in this particular method and you will be golden what i suggest you do is is that you engage with that right it the for example the woodpecker is a great example it has been extremely successful for hundreds and thousands not hundreds and thousands sorry so thousands of students right so you definitely want to give it a crack but what you need to do is not to do five million of those and five years later go like hmm this didn't work did it no check in with yourself after two weeks check in with yourself after a month right so the woodpecker is gonna teach you a bucket load of uh patterns for example so you will, you should have the self-awareness to play, you know, X amount of Blitz games, practice rapid games, long-time control games. And you go like, I'm still missing the Made in Twos. This is not working. Or, wow, <laughs> I'm smashing these motifs and 90% of them is coming from what I have been doing. It works. Nothing should you ever do for an extremely elongated time without regular check-ins with yourself or with the help of the coach of, this is not working, man. We need to do something else. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I love that as a way to evaluate its uh, its effect. There is no one safe and guaranteed way to improvement in chess, right? So right. everything is individual. Everything learns differently. Everything has everybody has preferences and likes and dislikes, and it needs to be adjusted. I'm just. This is all just amazing advice. I think this episode turned out to be just jam packed with <laughs> just tons of of wisdom and practical advice, both combined. Uh, I think um, I think you'll be competitive with the other episode <laughs> that we released together. Uh, I really do. Uh, yeah. So I, I just want to say thank you. I think you just it's gave because it. you ask good questions, Daniel. It's because of you ask good questions. That's that's <laughs> where the secret lies. I feel like I play a small role in this. I'm like 10%. This 90% of this awesomeness is you. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, anyway, I think uh, I think people really uh, be happy with what uh, everything that you shared with them. And so uh, I just want to say thank you for your time. No, no, thank you for um, the opportunity. And I really do hope that uh, whatever I said will prove at least somewhat helpful to your audience. Yeah, well, it's helped me already. So, I'm <laughs> so uh, you already count one in your column for that. Again, fantastic episode. Great interview, Andres. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, you're just, you're absolutely one of the best chess coaches in the world, in my opinion. And I just appreciate everything you do. Uh, I'm going to encourage people to check out your uh, YouTube channel if they haven't already to watch your videos uh, and buy your courses from Chessable. I'll put links to all that stuff uh, in the show notes for people to check out so they can um, see your content and uh and um, also your your social media with with uh, Twitter slash X as well. So uh, yeah, thank you again, Andres. Really appreciate it. Thanks for that. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy, and that has a website with the same name. If you want to look for it, you can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username Lona underscore Chess. See you next week.